Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Golf Channel Podcast with Rex and Lab. We are coming to you live from a taxi van on our way to the San Jose Airport. This podcast, Rex, is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're not gloating. Uh, we're this is not a this is not a humble brag, uh, but we have just completed quite possibly the greatest boondoggle in the history of boondoggles. Our friends at the USGA have set up. For us media types, a USGA Media Day at both of the upcoming U.S. Open venues. That would be Los Angeles Country Club and Pebble Beach, which is hosting for the first time the U.S. Women's Open. In a span of like 36 hours, we just played both of those venues, hopped on a private jet to get to Monterey. Uh, Rex, what are your thoughts on as we're wrapping up this whirlwind trip on Honestly, like something that it was like a bucket list item and something that we'll be telling our grandchildren about. There was nothing humble about that brag. It was just an absolute brag. I, I think what we ended up with today was, or the last two days, was kind of what we expected. When, all right, so we're in a van. Dennis's phone just rang. Dennis, like, we're, we're doing something here, Dennis, my man. This is, this, is a, this is a live recording. All right. You're, you're good. Uh, I, I think what we ended up with is a, a, a unbelievable two days and it, an exposure to some of the coolest golf that you're ever going to run into. I, I had never even seen LACC. I think the special part of the U.S. Open is going to be sort of this new venue. And so going out and getting to see it, we're going to get into sort of what we, you know, what we took away from that. I had never played Pebble. I came out here, you and I had this conversation. You're, you're old. That's shocking yeah. that you hadn't previously played it uh my wife and i got married in 1999 we came out here to honeymoon in monterey and she told me at the time that you can go play pebble of course it's a it's a dream gig it's a bucket list item you can go do it at the time i think it was like 350 which is nothing now compared to what it is for a, a tea time and i was poor i was so poor i couldn't bring myself to do it so i played old del monte so it was such a treat and it, it delivered like it was one of those places that you build up in your mind, and once you get out on the golf course, I did not play well, and it was still special. You played unbelievably well. How did that happen? Yeah, we're certainly going to have to put a pin in that. We, we're going we're gonna to do this step-by-step. Step. We're going to start with Los Angeles Country Club, which is the host site for this year's U.S. Open. First time a U.S. Open uh, has, has been in L.A. in, what, 75 years? Uh, I think was the, the stat that they kept reciting. So let's, let's start with the golf course. I was actually supposed to cover the Walker Cup back in 2017 which was kind of LACC's step back into the light it's kind of one of those unknown courses that you know if it's like if you know you know it's top 20 course uh, in the world and yet it really hasn't received all that much national exposure I was supposed to cover that Walker Cup and a category 5 hurricane was coming so I canceled the trip last minute you and lived in Orlando yes but I also lived like 20 miles from the coast and that thing was supposed to rip up the coast uh, and, and destroy us uh, newsflash uh, it did not, uh, but I made what was the best decision I thought, I thought for my family, uh, and I, of course I came to regret it. Um, I did watch that Walker Cup, the U.S. one, handily. Uh, I remember thinking, LACC, I can't wait uh, until the U.S. Open gets here, and now six years later uh, we have arrived at that moment. I think the first thing that stood out, I had the opportunity to play with uh, USGA CEO uh, Mike Wan, uh, absolutely fantastic time, but you had the privilege to do it uh, today at Pebble. First thing that's going to stand out when you see this golf course is the width of the fairways. This is not your grandfather's U.S. Open 
with 20-yard wide fairways, thick penal rough on each side, you know, hack-out rough, guys scrambling for pars. Like, this is the kind of golf course that I would set up in my dreams. It's, it's 50, 60, 70 yards wide in some cases, and you can just wail away with abandon. Now, it gets, it gets tricky from there. It's, a, it's almost Augusta-esque in the difficulty of the walk as well as the undulations in the fairways. I can't recall a single instance in which I had a perfectly flat lie for the approach shots. And, of course, the green, the green surrounds are, are pretty famous. A lot of slope in the greens, um, really thick, gnarly rough uh, surrounding the greens. It's going to be really hit or miss uh, if you do miss trying to get up and down. That was what I would say initially stood out to me. What were your impressions as we dive into the golf course? We were on the bus this morning with John Bodenhammer, who's the chief championships officer for the USGA, and I found it fascinating that he asked us, what did you guys think about LACC? Because here's a man who has probably spent the last five years of his professional career trying to get it right, trying to figure out exactly what this golf course is going to be like for the U.S. Open. I, I did find it fascinating that the fairways were so wide. It does look Augusta-like. I don't think I've ever... I guess the only comp I could find in fairway width at a U.S. Open was Chambers Bay, because those seem... Oh, I love Chambers Bay. Yeah. That was a great U.S. Open. And, and so that's the only comp there. The other part was it's the par threes. There's five par threes. Two of them are going to play potentially over 300 yards. One of them is going to play, uh, I don't know, 120 yards which you did not hit the best shot of your life there yesterday. We can get into that later. <laughs> but it, it, it's such a, a, a great combination of par threes. And, and, look, there's going to be some excitement coming down the stretch. I mean, 18, I even said it to – I was playing with their chief commercial officer yesterday, John uh, Padani, and I, I, I said as we were walking down 18, like, this is a good walk. This is going to be special. Whoever wins on Sunday is going to enjoy Massive, it. massive grandstand. Like – Players Championship esque grandstand, like you would typically find, actually like an Open Championship, right? Like, yeah, it's 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 very similar to that build out. You only have grandstands, I believe. I may, I may get this wrong. One, two, uh, and fourteen, like hospitality type settings. You obviously you have grandstands throughout the rest of the golf course, but from a hospitality standpoint, it's very limited. And the, the real central one, obviously, is is off the first hole. So I think. Again, the par threes are going to be special. I think the width of the fairways are going to get into people's ears. I, I would warn, I guess I would caution just to throw it out there. There's going to be low scoring. This is going to be a 10, 12, 14 under open simply because in regardless of conditions, if it gets wet, it could even be, you know, even more than that. Simply because you're going to get, guys are going to be able to stand on tees and just be aggressive. You don't see that at a U.S. Open, but I still think it's going to be such a cool venue just because of where it's at. You and I stayed in Beverly Hills, and it was we, we drove through the middle of the golf course, didn't realize you were there. It's such a cool spot. It's, it's incredible to think that, I mean, that has to be the second most expensive property that has been undeveloped in the country behind only Central Park. I mean, we're, we're talking folks like smack dab in the middle of, of LA, like seeing skyscrapers and condominiums surrounding you, and it, it just to think that there's this oasis basically behind uh, the, the gates. It's it's an extraordinary venue. I'm not sure what it's going to be like from a fan experience. There's a lot of barrancas that the spectators would have to navigate. It's actually about half uh, 
the fan attendance that you would typically see at a U.S. Open, which would be maybe 40,000 fans a day. We're looking, I think, 22 is the, is the number they said. A lot of them are going to be holed up in those hospitality uh, tents because the, the tickets are uh, so expensive. So I do think it'll be different from that standpoint. I'm not a... I, it's, it's not going to really bother me if the winning score is 12, 13, 14, 15 under, under par. I think it's more important, and we're certainly going to get into this with Pebble Beach hosting the U.S. Women's Open for the first time, how important the venues are and to make sure that for our national championship, you're bringing it to the very best golf course you possibly can, and I think you're, you're doing that with LACC. I thought it was cool, and, and look, they talked about this yesterday at the ceremony, Maquan mentioned the idea that this is the first time they've been back since 1975 and the idea that they did this and immediately signed on for a second one because they wanted they wanted this to be part of the rotation whatever it is every 10 years every 20 years because one it's LA two it's a really really special venue so I think that's going to be cool I do want to point out that as we drive towards San Jose Airport it started raining for the first time and that as we looked at the forecast as we got ready the forecast for today's round at Pebble Beach called for, I think, thunderstorms. Hail! And hail. hail. Small yeah. hail possible. Yeah. I, apparently it was just absolutely dreadful. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. On Tuesday morning, it was absolutely dreadful in the Pebble Beach area. Like, driving rain. Like, it actually was possible for hail. We had we had fantastic weather. Just to put a quick bow on uh, LACC, um, you had a conversation with someone formerly from the USGA who said that he, ex- he expects players to, to to tear it up, which I think I think is kind of to be expected, especially if you get some, some wet weather. I think so. I mean, again, you're putting the best players in the world on fairways, as you pointed out, that are 40, 50, 60 yards wide. I actually paged across the fairway on 18. It was 80 yards across. So you have these, you have these massive... I actually went from the right side of 18 to all the way to the grandstand I want. I I just a vicious... Folks, a vicious snap-up, which is going to be in stark contrast to the way to the way that I played 24 hours later. But yes, I, I can attest that it is extremely wide uh, from from one to 18. And I think if you give the best players in the world. Now that being said, we've gotten used to the idea that the USGA with the graduated graduated rough and everything else that they do, you won't see that. So if you're off the fairway, you're going to it's going to be a difficult advantage to advance the ball. However, in anything around the greens. Like, we can attest to how difficult that is if you don't hit one of these tiny little undulating greens. That said, someone's going to be on their game that week. I I think we will see low scores. That won't make it any less special, or that won't make LACC any less deserving of a U.S. Open. I just think that's the nature of the game today. How'd you play? Uh, At LACC, I actually played halfway decent. It's a very difficult layout, so I did not... Uh, shoot the number I wanted, but I was very happy with the round. Today at Pebble, I did not. Uh, LAC, thank, thank you for asking uh, for me. Um, I didn't play poorly, didn't play particularly well. I just didn't do anything right. Uh, as I mentioned, like having such a forgiving golf course off the tee is is my absolute dream and just didn't strike my irons well enough to, to greens that are very small. Even though they were they were soft, obviously, uh, they're, they're hoping to uh, have vastly different conditions when the world's best players come in about six weeks' time. Um, I just kind of got like bogeyed to death out there. I didn't see tons of big numbers. Like I don't know that you could make like doubles and triples out there unless like you get into this five six 
seven inch hay and fescue around the greens and just like keep hacking away like we saw Dustin Johnson in the 2010 US Open at Pebble like I don't see that situation but I can see guys just making an absolute boatload of bogeys but there's also some really short holes and some gettable uh, you know drivable par, drivable par fours where you're, you're going to make birdies as well so I do think scoring is going to be great I think it's going to be a fantastic US Open keep in mind this is going to be in prime time on the east coast finishing up at 11 o'clock Eastern Time on Saturday, uh, 10 o'clock Eastern Time on Sunday. I don't know how I'm going to get through my story uh, writing, knowing that those are the, the finishing times. I'm going to have to pound coffee, uh, do something illegal in order to stay a- awake at that hour. Uh, but it should be an absolutely fascinating U.S. Open uh, for the first time in a long time at LICC. Then, Rex, we hopped on the jet, did so on Tuesday jet. morning. PJ. That's right. Hopped on the PJ. First time for me. Was that the first time you've been on a, a private Yes, that's right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, this is a, really a trip of first for you. Uh, that's shocking, considering your advanced age. Uh, but we had a great time. Morgan Pressel's dog, I, I think, was the star of the show. Uh, shout out, Zoe. Uh, you are a very good girl. Uh, great, uh, I would say, program leading into the U.S. Women's Open. Uh, Christy Yamaguchi, Brandy Chastain, uh, Morgan Pressel, Michelle Wee West were was in attendance. Like, there's so much excitement knowing that the the best female golfers in the world are finally going to get a showcase event at Pebble Beach. This seems wrecked like a like a long time coming. I think the part of the the program that got me was Brandy Chastain, and you're probably going to say the same thing. And so she told a story about she's from Northern California, she loves golf, and she told a story about coming out and walking Pebble Beach with her grandfather. And she actually broke down in tears when she said the idea that I'm going to go and walk that grand that golf course with my grandchildren. And it gives you the, an idea of how special this is. I mean, look, Pebble Beach is a part of the USGA's fabric. It's, it's what they call a staple venue now. I, and I just think the idea that the Women's Open is going there takes it to the next level because it, they deserve it. And I think it's one of those opportunities where it, it, they talked about it this morning. Everyone's going to want to tune in because it's Pebble, and it doesn't matter who you're watching play golf. We, we watched Bill Murray play Pebble Beach, and now you have the best women golfers in the world doing it. It's going to be such an event. Date change, uh, of course, moved later in the schedule. It's now uh, like July 4th week. I believe July 4th is on Tuesday this year, and so it's being played. Uh, it, it, the, the tournament begins two days after that. It doesn't go up against anything else in the tournament schedule. Uh, it's going to be fantastic uh, to see Lydia Ko, Jin Young Ko, Nellie Korda uh, take on a golf course that's so familiar uh, to all of us. Um, and I actually think, I actually think the golf course sets up better to identify that skill set than it, than it might than it might do for the men. I mean, from the tips, it's 6,900 yards. It was most recently there in 2019. Uh, you didn't get the wicked weather that we, we just so happened to have on Tuesday. Uh, like the wind completely died down, and, and Gary Woodland and Brooks Kepka took it took it very deep. At Pebble and kind of rendered that golf course uh, defenseless at times. That was not the case. That was that was not the conditions that we faced uh, on Tuesday. Forty miles an I, hour. It was it was it was at least thirty, and like consistent. It wasn't like fluctuating. Or you get these violent gusts. It was like just just beating your head in the the entire day. Tell us tell us about your playing partners uh, as well as uh, how, how your round went. Uh, my playing partner was uh, the CEO of the USGA, Mike Wan, who I played with before, you played with yesterday, 
and he's a very dynamic leader. I think we can both agree to that. I would run through a wall for Mike Wan. He, he could tell me to do anything, and I would do it. All right. Well, that's journalistically unsound, so I'm not going to go that far. But I, I think from from like a from like a a, a, a dynamic personality standpoint, like he he stands in stark contrast, particularly with the with the current LPG commissioner Molly Marcus Simon, who is I would say a little bit more monotone, a little bit more um, business like. She's not as personable. She's not as fiery of a speaker. She's not as um, much of a cheerleader, kind of like a, that rah-rah personality. And, like, that's exactly what the LPJ needed with the time that Mike Wan stepped in there. They were in dire straits. He came in, basically rescued the tour, had a bunch more sponsors, and now uh, you're you're seeing um, kind of the fruits of that with the LPJ in better shape than it ever has with, with, with record purses. And I think a lot has to do with Mike Wan, and he's now taking that same sort of uh, mentality to leading the USGA, which, you, you know, it hasn't been in the quite... The dire straits that the LPJ was, but I would, I would say that there was an identity crisis. No, there was, there was some division certainly with Mike Davis at the helm. No doubt. I mean, it, again, he's a very dynamic leader. I guess the part that stands out to me is I, I played in this similar event when the U.S. Open was at Torrey Pines, and I had never really met Mike before. And we're standing on the first tee, and I was trying to be funny, and I asked him how many blue blazers he had before he took the job, because of course that's the signature of the USGA. And he laughed, and he said, no, they sent me three when I took the job. And then a month later, they called me and said, we're going to send you two more. And his response was, no, I'm good. I have enough. Which gives you an idea of, okay, so he has a sense of humor. He understands. Doesn't take himself too seriously. He was literally grabbing bags, suitcases and, and golf bags, out of the out of the shuttle bus. Like, what CEO is, is getting their hands dirty like that? Uh, no one is. And look, I, I think we can all appreciate what he did for the LPGA and certainly what he's doing for the USGA. To your point, playing Pebble Beach today with him was fun because we were having this conversation about where do you think the women are going to hit it here? And Because all of these shots that are iconic, like we've watched the men play Pebble Beach for so long and, and now the women are going to have the opportunity. And it was so much fun to be sort of in that arena. And you, you had you had a lot of fun shooting your 120 today. Uh, 120 is being generous, wildly generous, because it, it was a difficult day. I don't know how you shot what you shot, but I'll go ahead and leave it to you right now. The floor is yours. How did you do that? Honestly, not not too sure. Uh, for those of you that have followed this podcast, you know it's been uh, a little bit of a struggle bus of the last few years as I tried to reclaim my game. Which was, I mean, it used to be pretty decent. It used to be like a three four handicap, and now got a bum elbow people make fun of my elbow strap like had some driver issues shout out ricky for lending me his driver for this trip uh hit it pretty good i used your i used your putter yesterday that was a, a mistake didn't make a putt outside you asked for three it. feet i i did but it's like sometimes you need to sometimes you need to let your your gamer know like hey i can i can, I can find other i can find other girls out there you know you're not you're not just the one for me and i got i got i got my eyes on on, on some other suitors and 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 ended up putting really well. Like Lily made almost every single thing that I, that I looked at today. I'm pretty sure Amy knows that there are no other suitors. No, incredibly happy, incredibly happy in my marriage. Yes, I'm pretty sure she absolutely knows there are aren't any other suitors. No, I mean look, I mean look at me for God's sake. Uh, there's definitely no other suitors. Uh, we started so this was a shotgun. Sorry, shout out Liv. Uh, on the seventh hole, uh, I'm not sure there is a worse hole that you would want to start off on, but. I must say, Rex, so... I can read the text. 
I could read the text from you that you Go sent ahead. me from from the seventh tee. Go ahead. It was oh my god, it's blowing thirty miles an hour. Oh, there's definitely an f bomb in there. No, there there's a there's an f. Claim it up for the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. This is a this is a family program. Uh, so the last couple of shots that I hit on the range, knowing that we were going to be facing basically a hundred yard shot on seven, was like I was hitting fifty six degree wedges. 52 in case it was in case in case it was a little bit of wind and I was catching them all fat like the turf is incredibly tight uh, on the range I didn't particularly find that to be the case out on the golf course but the range uh, was very tight and I was like I was kind of dreading it so I was actually relieved to see that it was blowing that hard in my face knowing that I could take a little bit more club and not have a you know a, a, a club that you had to absolutely pick perfectly with the bounce and the, the leading edge, you know what I mean? And so so it was it was 100 yards right on the dot, and I'm curious to see what you hit. I hit like a half-swing 8-iron. My thinking being, obviously, it's an elevated tee. It was literally blowing 40. Like, that's not an exaggeration. Like, the, the, the stick was about to rip uh, out of the hole. My thinking being, you got to keep this down by any means necessary. Like, a 100-yard shot is, is, is probably a hard lob wedge or kind of a light sandwich for me. If you're playing it, let's say 125, that'd be a light pitching wedge for me. But a pitching wedge, like, it's going to balloon up in the air. So I took an 8-iron and basically chipped it and hit it 25 feet short. I was very pleased with myself. I was off and running with a par, and it just kind of continued from there. Par for the first five holes, and drumroll please, ended up shooting 78. Shot 6 over, 78. Just kind of like the only mistakes I made, 17 I, I blew up on. 17, that that hole had been playing 230 today. It was into and from the left. You you know, you know that is that is not a good win for me. Um, but other than that, it was just kind of like sloppy, tired leg bogeys, which I can live with. Uh, I think only there's there's no greater reminder of how out of shape you are than when you walk a hilly golf course. Like I was moaning, groaning, bitching. Like there was there was pain in areas I didn't know existed. Uh, on Tuesday morning just after 18 holes. All right. This is enough self-indulgence. It was Tuesday on the PGA Tour. It was a big news day. We can get to Rory. We can get to Joe LaCava. Yes, you, you had a career round. Good for you. Let's move on. Thank you. It was a big day uh, at Quell Hollow where you're heading after this red-eye flight that is upcoming. You'll get there on Wednesday. I don't believe Rory McIlroy is scheduled to meet with the media at this yeah. point, but he did talk uh, with our Todd Lewis in which he – Basically explained, hey man, I just needed a break. Uh, there was a busy lead up to the Masters, as it typically is for every player who wants to get their game in gear. Obviously, he's been dealing with more things than the typical PJ Tour player. Uh, although those kind of off-course commitments, I would say, are certainly winding down as the PJ Tour schedule uh, for 2024 and beyond is coming more into focus. But obviously, it was a highly disappointing Masters performance. Missing the cut, given the way that he... Uh, was playing heading into the Masters was utterly shocking. Uh, and I think it was telling, knowing how much blowback he was going to receive from the media, knowing how much blowback he was going to receive from his peers, that one of the architects of this designated event series was the only player to skip two events and thus forfeiting uh, a quarter of his $12 million pip bonus, I think was telling. I think that shows you exactly where his mind was. Uh, following Augusta and ended up skipping the RBC Heritage. Um, and he seemed and sounded refreshed, ready to turn the page uh, and make the most of what is still left uh, of this major season and the rest of the PGA Tour season. 
Yeah, he told Todd he needed to break, and that's a really good interview, good for Todd for getting it. Uh, he told Dan Rappaport uh, something different, though. He said it was a personal issue, whatever that might be. And this goes to what you and I have already talked about, the idea. I, I think I mentioned this yesterday. I did an XM radio with our buddies Jason Sobel and Michael Collins that they asked me what I would want to ask Rory, first question out. And I said, well, the first question is, why did you skip Hilton Head? Like, why was that the one you wanted to skip? And depending on the answer, because if you do get, it was a personal issue and I don't want to get into it, you have to respect that. There's a lot of things journalistically that you feel like you can take a step over the boundaries. That one, I I personally don't feel like you can. If the answer is what he told Todd, I just needed a break, my follow-up was, was it worth $3 million? Clearly to him it was. And, and look, maybe it was, and it, it, $3 million means a lot more to him, or a lot more to me than it does to him. However, in this particular scenario, I think we can all agree that if he just needed a week off, and he was willing to give up $3 million, that's a telling move for him. And nothing against, I, I don't think anyone wanted to jump to conclusions that, oh, he just wanted to skip it, that there was something that something wrong like we all wanted to make sure that okay as long as nothing was wrong with his family as long as he didn't have any physical issues there is a there is a problem here i guess my biggest issue going forward is one why didn't he talk to to all of the press and two is it really worth three million dollars to take a week off because that's shocking to me It, it does seem that he's dodging it a little bit i mean he's been one of the most visible players on the pga tour over the past handful of years he's a three-time winner of this Wells Fargo championship like he kind of needs to appear uh, in a pre-tournament press conference and the fact that he didn't either asking out of it or the tour not asking him uh what was was very surprising to me and it and it, and it, it just seems like there's they're, they're, they're giving him some space and look there's certainly I would say a renewed emphasis on prioritizing athletes emotional health and well-being Right, and if, and if and if Roy said he needed a break and he wasn't in a good headspace, and now he is, then that's kind of all right for me. And I, I wasn't as interested in his personal rationale, and more, but I was more so about like, what does this mean for the rest of this tour season? What does this mean for 2024? Are other players going to follow his example? I mean, Roy finished second in the PIP, and he ended up forfeiting three million dollars. Of course, Commissioner Jay Monahan. Uh, has total discretion over those funds. If if Rory tells him, "Hey, man, like, I was in all these conference calls and I got burned out. Like, this was, I was trying to save the PJ Tour." Jay Monahan may say, "Yeah, it's a pretty good reason." Here's I don't, here's I don't your... see that happening. I, I just don't see that. Why happening. not? Well, internally on the PGA Tour, there there is some pushback on Rory, and and I have, I will look at what Rory did over the last year. I'm the one that went to the mat saying that. Of all the years, and we have a we have an award on the Golf Writers Association that we give to the player that is the most engaging with the press. Rex is the VP of uh, GWA, by the way. And I argued for Rory to get that award last year at the Masters this year, and there was some. How did, how did that go? It didn't go well, and the reason it didn't go well, for it, and it hasn't gone well the last few years. One, he, it's kind of before his time. He's still a little bit too young, and that's probably true. The other half of it is is that he does blow, that there are times when he does not want to talk to the press, this week being a primary example. He was leading a major championship last year, and there's four questions that were asked. That's kind of, that's inexcusable. My argument last year was, 
that he tackled it all. He wanted all of the heat. At the at East Lake at the Tour Championship, uh, there was a UK rider that said, "Sorry, I, I hate to bring this up again, but I have a live question." And I think his response was, "No, I want it. I want all of it. I want all the smoke. Just bring it to me." Like you can say that, "Okay, Jay's going to step in and do this," but there is no way for him to do that in this particular situation because when I, I can tell you when I called the tour to ask them to confirm that Rory has forfeited his $3 million. The tour does not admit to those types of things. The tour as a rule doesn't talk about fines. This wasn't a fine, but they would not normally... Wasn't it Wasn't in the regulations? Uh, it was in the regulations, but again, this is not something that they would normally volunteer. It's a new, it's a new tour. It's a new, it's a new age. But Tra official, transparency. We've been, we've been begging for more transparency. But the official I talked to said that there were so many agents of players who had called in to ask because Rory has been so out, outspoken about this. He has been the forefront. He has been the guy who has said that this is what we absolutely have to do, that there is no way that the tour could, could gloss over this. There's no way they could ignore it and pretend like it was going to go away. If he's going to violate whatever rules these are, and look, going into next year, these rules don't apply. So it's a little difficult situation. But if he's going to flaunt these rules then the tour is going to have to follow through on what they said they were going to do, and that's you don't get 25% of your bonus, which for him was $3 million. That's why I'm interested to see how does he view this model because I think Rory is 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 different. He finished second in the pit. Like that's, He's forfeiting $3 million. A Patrick Cantlay did not. He would be forfeiting what's a quarter of... He'd be forfeiting $500,000 in a designated event. That's like a top 10. Like, that's not a harsh penalty for a player of that stature to miss a designated event. And so do, do players kind of do the, do the calculus and say, hey, do I really want to fly across the country after the U.S. Open to play in the Travelers Championship? Or can I take a week off, uh, kind of reset, and make sure that I'm, I'm ready to go for the Scottish, the Open Championship, and then, of course, the FedEx Cup playoffs with the Ryder Cup after that? That's probably a calculus that a lot of players are doing. You, you mentioned next year. There is no mandatory requirement. For players to play in the designated event. That seems like a risk to me. You're asking sponsors to pony up twice as much as they typically would, and yet you don't have assurances that you're going to get the Rory's and the Roms and the Spieths uh, and the Scotties. Like, it, there's no guarantee that those guys are going to show up. And they say, look, we have a lot of inducements, right? There's a lot of enticements for these players to continue to play the designated events. We have the best players, we have the huge purses, there's a renewed emphasis, of course, on the top 50 uh, in the FedEx Cup to, to make sure they're in the designated events. Next year, like, there's all these sorts of perks, and yet, if you're a Rory, a Rom, a Scotty, essentially, you're going to be a player of the year contender, right? Like, you can bank on that at the start of the year. Why would you sign up for these tournaments if it means you're going to run yourself into the ground, right? Like, why not skip one or two of them if you know that you're still going to get yours. You're still going to win two or three times. You're still probably going to at least contend in a major championship and make good that way. You don't have to worry about the top 50. So I think that's really something uh, that I'd like to ask Rory about. Like, how does he view 2024 and not having this mandatory this mandatory requirement? Does, does he envision playing all of them next year, or does he see himself still skipping two or three, even, even with the $20 million purses? I think this goes back to last year at East, East Lake when John Rahm was probably the most outspoken when it came to this, and, it, and he was told that, are you going to play all 20? Because the way these sort of hash out is, you have to play the designated events, the majors, the playoffs, everything else, and then you have to add three, and it adds up to 20. 
and he was kind of incredulous about it. He was not a fan of it, and he sort of recoiled and said that that's going to have to change. Going forward, it will change. There's going to be fewer designated events. I think next year we're looking at something closer to 18 designated events. And to your point, no, players will not be beholden to do this. They will not have to absolutely play these these 18, 20, whatever the, the number of events are. However, the incentive that the tour argues is, one, the bigger purses, $20 million, and two, they're going to get exponentially more points for the playoffs, uh, for the FedEx Cup. That combined, I think, is what they hope motivates players. I don't think it's going to be the catch-all. It's not going to be the panacea that they think it's going to be. You're going to end up with Rory skipping two, maybe three of these I mean, I mean, Rory and Scotty and Rahm are going to win two or three times sure. next year. Like, I think you can mark that right now. So why would they play a week after a major if they're burned out and tired? Why would they... You know, force they feed. They, why would they force feed all these these tournaments before the yeah. Masters if they don't want to? So I think that's. It was a. I think it was a very interesting move. I think it was a risky move to not make that mandatory. You're asking sponsors to pony up twenty million dollars, twice as much as they normally would, with no guarantees that you're going to have all the top players. I think that's very interesting. Roy will talk to the to media at some point. During Quell Hollow, I would I would suspect after his opening round on Thursday it could be a lengthy session, uh, but we'll see how that goes. Make sure you go to GolfChannel.com uh, for all of Rex's stories from there. The second bit of news on Tuesday, which was fascinating, is that Patrick Cantlay has split with his longtime caddy uh, Matt Rev Minister, and on his bag instead, not as a one-off, not as kind of a short-term replacement. But in a, as a, in a full-time capacity, is Joe LaCava. Tiger's caddy since, what, 2010, 2011? I, I mean, he's been on the bag for a dozen years or so. The, the reason, uh, per Todd Lewis's reporting, is twofold. Uh, uh, Joe LaCava got Tiger's blessing. Obviously, Tiger's underwent uh, ankle fusion surgery. He is out for the foreseeable future. Even when he does come back, he'll be playing an incredibly limited schedule at most, we're looking at uh, the four major championship appearances, as we've seen this year and even last year. Uh, that uh, has proved to be too tall of a task as well. And, and look, Joey wants to work. His kids are out of the house. Uh, he still uh, believes that he's at the top of his game. Rev is a, a, a fantastic caddy in his own right. Um, and, and, and if Joe LaCava wants to work full-time and get back on the PGA Tour 20, 22 weeks a year, uh, that's what he wants to do. And now he's hooked up with Cantley, what do you make of the move? And I guess what does it what does it mean for Tiger uh, that he's gone in a, in a different direction? Of all the news that came out of Tiger Woods' camp, and this goes to the surgery that you were just referenced, this goes to the accident that he suffered two and a half years ago. Now, this goes to all of the injuries that he's endured. This one concerns me the most because if Joe is willing to walk away, or if Tiger is willing to allow Joe to walk away, and that's essentially what this boils down to, that means that. I feel like it's a bad sign for where he's going. In the you, don't, you don't think Tiger's just setting him free? Maybe to a certain extent. And look, I, Joe has been in this circle for a long time. I mean, we've, ta- we've both talked to Joe LaCobb about the idea that he doesn't particularly like sitting at home not doing anything. And he's been very, very loyal to Tiger Woods, and he should get credit for that. And Tiger's been loyal to him. In this particular scenario, though, 
what does this mean for Tiger going forward is the question I would have, as opposed to why would Joe leave? Because it's obvious why Joe would want to work for a player like Patrick Cantlay, who is a top five player in the world. He can win a major, all of those things. What does this mean for Tiger? Uh, I think I think it's an acknowledgement that his playing career is winding down. I think it's an acknowledgement that as much as he'd love to have a caddy of Joe LaCava's expertise, it's unfair to a guy that he considers to be his friend uh, to to work just three or four times a year, right? Like, just, just keeping him on the couch. I don't know. I'm not privy to their financial agreement. Uh, I would assume that there's some sort of salary involved there. Um, but, but but I think it's an acknowledgement that, that hey, if I'm just going to do this two or three times a year, let's get Rob McNamara on the bag. Let's get you know, someone else that I'm that I'm comfortable with. Tiger's, I think, secure enough in his own golfing abilities um, that that a caddy is not as vital as it may be for a younger player or a player who's still kind of trying to reach the pinnacle of the sport as Patrick Cantley is trying to do. So I think it's I think it's more setting setting him free. Uh, I'm sure it was um, an emotional conversation between those two because they've they've. they've 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 been through some things, right, over the over the past dozen years, and so it's certainly an end of an era. And I, I but I think it's also an acknowledgement that I, I think we're we're slowly getting to the end for Tiger. And I would tend to agree with that. I, I think Tiger is at a point in his career where he realizes that he has a lot more runway behind him than he does in front of him, and that in Joe's particular case, he's still a caddy who can contribute to a young player like a Patrick Cantlay. And why not let him go in this particular situation? I, I guess the bigger issue in my mind is I don't understand how Joe fits into that camp because you and I both know Patrick Cantlay is a very unique player. Like, he's special. He's a top-five player. He could win a major championship. All of the things we can go through. However, you and I both have can attest to the idea that when he's on the golf course, he's all business. All he wants to talk about is golf. I'm not quite sure that's up Joe's alley. Like, I can see a bunch of young players that Joe could help right now, I, I would never have picked Patrick Cantlay. Uh, I would not have picked those two together as well. Yeah, I mean, Patrick Cantlay is, is quite possibly the most serious player on the PGA Tour. And, and that's not to say that, that Joe LaCava is, is freewheeling it out there. Like, he's, he's very diligent. Uh, he's very professional in what he does. But he's also like a guy's guy. Like, he wants to talk about New York Giants football. He wants to talk about the Yankees and Mets. And, that's, <laughs> and Patrick Cantlay is not the guy that you're going to banter with throughout the course of four or five rounds. I did a Patrick Cantlay feature last year. I asked, I interviewed Rev uh, for a long time about what Cantlay is like, and he says he is incredibly serious about what he is doing on the golf course. He said, "There's no," gra he said, quote, there is no grab-assing out there. That's not to say that Joe LaCava uh, wants to engage in any grab-assing, uh, but it's, it's, it certainly seems like disparate personalities between those two, uh, and I'm very interested to see uh, how they will mesh. I mean, catch up. I mean, it's, it is an interesting time in Patrick Cantley's career, is it not? Like he's 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 been knocking on the door. He's a top five player in the world. Uh, hasn't particularly gotten close to winning a major. You could maybe look back at the 2019 Masters as maybe his best chance. Um, but other than that, I don't think he's quite fulfilled all of the potential that we had for him. Uh, when he was a hot shot amateur, so maybe Joe Lacava can take him. Uh, maybe this relationship flames out. Uh, it certainly remains to be seen. But that was, uh, I, I think, the capper for it was a very busy Tuesday 
at Quail Hollow. You'll be hitting the ground running, Rex, on Wednesday. That will be when this podcast record. What are you most looking forward to seeing? Tony Finau back in the field uh, after an incredibly impressive victory, uh, outlasting and outdueling world number one John Rahm, uh, who was valiant in his title defense and ended up finishing second uh, down in Mexico. Another designated event. And look, by and large, they've delivered. I mean, I think both of us have talked about this in numerous podcasts about the idea that the concept of putting the top players together more often, going head-to-head on these classic So many bangers. Yeah. Like, I I don't know if if any have come across flat. I guess we can sit here and debate. Like, we can go from Maui and move forward. I feel like Phoenix was very, very special. L.A. was obviously very good. Bay Hill. All of the designated events have delivered the way they want. I would imagine. The players is probably the most boring. Uh, Yeah. No, I would agree. Uh, I guess my bigger deal is we have not heard anything from Dennis. Dennis, you have anything to add to this? Um, I'm just getting into listening to you guys. I think that uh, Tiger Woods, what was his weight when he was at his peak? 180 pounds, 190 pounds? Sure. I I think my theory is when you're at your peak at 180, 190 pounds, and then you get older, like we all gain weight, and you're all of a sudden 210, 220, I think your whole body mass changes with the swing. Everything changes. I think if he was back down to his best playing weight, I think he'd be great again. You you want Tiger to go on a diet? Dennis, is, is you you want Tiger to go on a diet? I just want to see him at his peak again. I think I think we all do. I think I think we're all hoping he at least has one more run in him. It does seem, boy, it does seem highly unlikely at this point, does it not? I, uh, the old the old trophy. I could never count on Tiger. Dude's gonna be forty eight in December. His back is fused now. His so ankles fused. God, his I mean, his the, the lower right leg. Uh, as he says, has a lot of hardware in it. I think we're all hoping, Dennis, uh, that Tiger Woods gets back. Next next time we talk to Tiger, uh, we will let him know that, that you think he's that you think he's a little bit overweight. Chevy. Yep. It comes with age. It's a natural progression. But if you want to, I, I think that if he brought himself back to his peak weight, at his peak, in his peak prime, I think he, you know, I just think it weight changes your game. I mean, I think back to... I think back to how Tiger was in amateur golf and college golf when he first got out in the PGA Tour. Like he was, he was wiry. He had the absolute perfect frame for golf, and obviously he bulked up, perhaps for vanity reasons, perhaps for competitive reasons. Uh, but he is no longer uh, that skinny, wiry kid that we saw. That's a that's a very astute point, Dennis. Uh, and we do thank you for chiming. And thank you, and thank you so much uh, for letting us record this uh, Golf Channel podcast with Rex and Lab inside. Uh, this lovely taxi van. But Rex, we're heading to San Jose. We will not be doing it in the airport. Probably a good call. Uh, that way we can uh, rehash our rounds uh, and uh, hopefully take down a couple of beers before this red-eye flight. Uh, God knows we are going to need it. Uh, make sure, folks, to head over to golfchannel.com for the rest of the week to get Rex's uh, sleep-deprived uh, and jet-lagged uh, content coming from the Wells Fargo Championship. We'll recap everything on next week's edition. Just two weeks remain until the year's second major championship, the PGA, my old hometown of Rochester Rex. Of course, you'll be uh, leaving that one early on Sunday. Uh, we'll only mention that 10 more times uh, before Major Sunday rolls around. But thank you guys for listening. Appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed uh, a special edition of this Golf Show podcast with Rex and Laugh. Talk to you next week.